G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. Just imagine for a moment caring for a child who does not want to live. Well, as the story goes, it was an ordinary day when 16-year-old Molly was in the front passenger seat with her mother and they were stopped at a red light. It was peak hour and cars, buses, trucks, bikes, they all streamed by when Molly said to her mother, I just want to walk in front of that bus. Well, it's been nine years since then, and there have been many conversations about not wanting to live. There's been sleepless nights, a sense of helplessness, and the niggling fear of a precious loved one's safety. So how does a parent hold their child through such dark thoughts? And where do dark thoughts become suicide ideation? And where is God in the midst of a mental health crisis that a parent might have with their wonderful, loved child? Well, our special guest today has been through this issue, and she's very graciously made herself available to talk to us about her story. Penny Mulvey works with the Bible Society. In fact, Penny is the Chief Communications Officer at the Bible Society, and and I'm very humbled that she's joined us today to talk through her story. Penny, a special welcome along to 2020. Uh, Thank you so much, Neil. (laughs) That was quite an opening. You even just makes me feel a bit teary listening to you going to that. Well, that's always the concern, isn't it? And <laughs> the conversation today isn't a happy one. And and I said to one of my colleagues just before coming on the air, sometimes it's nice to end a week on a high note. And uh, we're not ending on a high note today because and now I, I think there'll probably be some moments where we'll hear some glimmers of hope. But it's not a, a pleasant conversation to have to tell your story. And I know you've told your story many times, Penny. And it probably uh, doesn't. Well, I get... haven't actually. Okay, right. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> well, then there's something fresh about the sorts of things you might share with us today. Let me start with uh, the idea of your daughter Molly. And sometimes we think, well, someone like Molly going through a mental health issue or crisis, and let's call it an ongoing crisis, there must be some sort of trigger. There must be some sort of reason why. But let us in on some insights here as to Molly's situation in the story that you tell. Uh, Well, Molly is now 25, and um, this, as you said, Said this conversation began when she was 16. Um, when Molly read this article, she actually said to me, you know, when I look back on that, I'd forgotten that conversation, but I think that was the first time I actually spoke out loud about my desire to walk in front of a bus, but I'd been thinking about it for at least a year or two years before that. 
So there's a certain level of courage that comes even in articulating those words and she just happened to do that and you were in the car together. Yes, and that that was kind of like your heart sinks when you hear that. Um, so I think with with Molly, she, um, she has wrestled and she wrestled when she was at school with her dark thoughts. I mean, Molly is a, a perfectionist. She's... Um, so highly driven, um, very intelligent, has an enormous um, burden for the world, um, takes on the world's issues, uh, is also funny and quick and all of those things. Uh, but in the midst of that, um, she has struggled uh, with, her, with her anxiety and depression. So she has both of those. She when didn't... She started feeling those things, um, she decided there was something wrong with her because she couldn't find a reason for it. Mm. And when it was talked about at school, they would often talk about, oh, well, you know, something might have happened in your past. There might have been an incident. You know, there, there could have been a family breakdown or, you know, there could have been abuse or, you know, so there are a range of things, all of which are absolutely entirely important so I'm not trying to dismiss those by any means what I'm trying to say is she couldn't put herself into any of those categories which somehow made her feel even worse that that she was even more of a failure because she couldn't find a trigger for why she felt the way she felt you know, there's a certain sense here, I can hear you say this, um, she realised something was wrong, but didn't want anyone else to know what she was struggling with. And I can hear you saying that she had a brave face on. Of course, there were some who could be a little more insightful and they could see things a little more deeply. And when she was out, she was trying to be as normal as what she thought normal would be. But that mask came off when she was at home and uh, those dark feelings, those dark thoughts, they all begun to overwhelm uh, when she's in the privacy of home. Is that the way it looked? Oh, look, Neil, you've hit the nail on the head. I mean, we are all good at putting masks on when we need to. Um, but for those who, and I think we're, we're having conversations about it right now when we talk about introverts and extroverts. So Molly is an introvert as well. So if, for those who are introverts, You'll, you'll understand this, to the effort that goes into being outward and smiling and full of energy and all the things that people want of you, you can do for a period, but it takes an enormous toll. So if you think about the toll of being an introvert and trying to put on that face of being in control and being full of energy and all those things, and then and on top of that, um, someone who is feeling seriously depressed and anxious. You can imagine the degree of uh, almost hysteria that can come from that performance when you've run out of steam. And, of course, these issues, and we're talking about Molly today, but these issues are very widespread throughout our society and, and a lot of people that are wearing the same sort of mask uh, not wanting others to know that they've got a, an issue with mental illness. Uh, and, of course, that is so widespread. Uh, but, of course, as you know, when you come home and the mask is off, the darkness is there, 
How widespread, in your understanding, is this sort of story, something similar to yours or or others who are different affected by their own depression? No doubt when you start to tell your story, everyone's got their own story to share with you. Neil, I, I think, you know, we're currently in what's described as a pandemic. Uh, I wrote, um, so this is coming out of an article I, I wrote that was published, um, this interview, and I actually wrote that um, with the permission of Molly because I do think that we are in an epidemic of, and I don't say that lightly, of uh, mental health issues because I, you only have to scratch the surface of any conversation with, I find, with other parents. So I'm talking about parents with, with grown adult children, so young adults, um, late teens, and invariably one member of their family will be experiencing um, some degree of mental health issues, be it eating disorders or um, other chronic problems that are hugely distressing for both the parent and the child. And the problem is that um, there is a stigma around mental health issues even now employers might feel anxious about employing someone with mental health issues it's not visible you can see other when the person has broken their leg or they've got something else that might be visible um, mental health is is definitely not visible um, and so you've got added on that that parents and children are carrying this burden on their own because they are terrified the parents are terrified that they might cause it might be a stigma to their family or a stigma to their child and their child will be judged. And so they're carrying it. And we as parents are all... <laughs> so the reason I wrote this was that I feel like all, all these parents are wandering around feeling totally hopeless, thinking we don't have any answers because, of course, we don't. We are, work, we are in the dark around this. And all we want to do is love our children as much as we can and help them through it. But we don't necessarily even have the tools for that except, of course, love. Penny, the article you're talking about, uh, published in Eternity newspaper, and I'll certainly uh, encourage listeners uh, to, you can Google it and you can read the whole story there, and uh, just sharing your heart in there is just an amazing thing. Uh, so Eternity newspaper, you can Google it and you can find uh, Penny's story, uh, the story of Penny and Molly there. When we talk about the stigma that's attached to mental illness, uh, as you say, everyone's trying to keep that quiet because there is the stigma there. Because once the cat's out of the bag, once everybody knows, once your friends are all aware, once everyone in your church community is aware, somehow or other you're constantly reminded of your depression. You're constantly reminded of these dark thoughts. That's why you would probably try to keep things under wraps. Is that the case? Well, I think... It I think, yes, either people look at you with sympathy or with judgment or, you know, or you think they do. They mightn't at all. Um, but you feel, you can feel that. And I think often when we're at church, we feel that everyone else has the perfect family and we don't. You know, we're the failures. <laughs> and we look, because we go, can only see the surface and we all put on a surface and we see the surface. It's a bit like Facebook and Instagram. It's, you know, there's this perfect gloss to it all. And so we sit there thinking, oh, my goodness, we're failures. What have we done wrong? Well, I, I, my word is that I want people to hear is you haven't done anything wrong. 
mental health is an ill health. I don't know whether we have an understanding and an explanation for it. And I want to also add that um, your child is still your child, um, or you are still you, and that is just a part of you. It doesn't define you. It's not something you have to be ashamed of. It is something that is you, and you are learning all the time how to manage it, how to live with it, but it doesn't it doesn't take away from who you are. In fact, it might enhance you. It might give you a greater understanding and awareness of a whole lot of other things that other people don't get. So I think it's why I want to talk about it is because I don't, I feel like this is a terrible um, tra- trauma for parents to feel that they have to hold this so tightly. And if they started talking about it, one, it opens up permission for others to talk about it. And two, we can seek support and care and love and prayer from each other and and seek God's wisdom because that's the one thing that I would urge people to pray is to pray for God's wisdom and pray healing, you know, care over our children. I don't, I'm not even sure whether, because I would have to be careful, you don't want to think that there's something wrong with with your child, that, that this is part of them. It doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong. And I think that's, that's the other thing that you, you have. You, I think I've come to grips with that when we sought help ourselves, it wasn't about me wanting to solve Molly. It was about me wanting to understand how we as parents could hold her, um, support her, potentially develop um, tactics or techniques that would enable her to manage the world better, but it wasn't about curing her. Does that make sense? It makes sense. And I want to ask you, and you've begun to talk about it, you know, pray for your child. Uh, People listening to our conversation today will know that you are a woman of faith. Uh, You do wonderful work with the Bible Society. This faith is a part of who you are. And so when we ask that question, where is God in the midst of mental health issues that come into a family and they don't just go away after a few weeks, how do you discuss this idea, what God means to you in the midst of this circumstance? Well, God hasn't... There's no um, promise. In fact, the Bible is very clear that there is nothing that says that Christians will have life easy. There's, there's, no, there's nothing in the Bible that suggests that because we love Jesus that we get a free pass. I mean, Jesus, as we've just um, commemorated and celebrated, rose from the dead, rose from the dead injured. He was, he was different. He was scarred. You know, we know because the disciples saw and put their hands and experienced the, um, the nails in his hands and the scar of the spear, he was, he was different. So we need to understand that we will experience things that um, leave us scarred in this world. That doesn't mean that God has abandoned us. God loves us. And in fact, God walks with us because Jesus walked with us. He is human. He walked with us and will walk with us in our scarred in journeys that we're on. None of us are going to go to heaven with God unscarred for whatever that scarring is. 
Visions 2020 with Neil Johnson. A biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. Penny Mulvey is our guest this hour. We're talking through her story as a mum with her daughter Molly. Our talkback line is open on 1-800-316-316. There's also a Facebook question you can respond to if you've experienced mental illness. How do you describe the darkness? How do we best care for people with depression? Penny, just to bring out little context here, it is a a difficult conversation we're having today. And, uh, you know, I'm being as sensitive as I can be. Uh, there's a certain sense in which the language we use when we talk about mental illness is one of those important ways that we we don't offend one another uh, or we don't uh, trigger something in another. Uh, how do you describe the sort of language that's useful and necessary when we're talking about mental illness with one another? Uh, Neil, I think it's about, particularly when having conversations with someone who could potentially be suicidal or is is not um, is expressing significant anxious thoughts, deep dark thoughts, and this comes from you mentioned Beyond Blue. Beyond Blue has some amazing resources online, and when some of these conversations first began in our household, I. Um, thought out some of that, which was really helpful. One of the things that um, experts... So I I want to stress that I'm just a mother. I am not an expert. I'm a mother who's lived with this, but I am definitely not an expert. I'm just trying to do my best, Um, as is my husband um, and as is Molly. Um, Mm. So that's all we can do, really, isn't it, is try and do our best. Um, But one of the things that uh, the experts talk about is when... um, when someone is potentially suicidal, is there a thing, particularly young people, because one of the things about young people, as those of you who have young people, uh, the, that they can be very um, in the moment. So it's that sudden decision to do something, and it's like the brain switches off. We know the brain hasn't fully developed yet. And so young people can suddenly think that um, they want to go off and do something, and away they go without a care in the world. Likewise, they might suddenly decide that um, they are a burden to everybody, that the world would be better off without them, that their loved ones would be much better without them because really and truly they are just of no value whatsoever. So then it's in that thinking that they can do something really rash. If they have things around that help them do that, there's more chance of their success. So if, if, for instance, you have a child in that space you want to make sure that there are no knives in the house you want to make sure that you've removed um, medications that they could take Um, you probably you know might want to make sure that the car keys aren't easily accessible so it's those kind of things that they suggest there's also around language so language is things like well i've the language we've developed is uh if I'm having a conversation or I get a text message or an, which Molly and I have done a lot of texting over the years, if I get a message or a conversation that suggests she's feeling really dark, I will say, are you safe? Are you safe at the moment? If I, if I hang up, 
Will you do some, Will you remain safe? Can you promise me you are safe? And that means, you know, obviously I'm not going to do anything stupid right now, Mum, I promise. You know, that's, that's in the end what that means. And is there like a culture that you build as a parent while you're concerned every moment of the day as to whether that safety is in place in the things that are surrounding your daughter? Does Molly have this idea of I can make myself safe when I'm feeling good by removing those things like knives or medications and those things, getting them out of the way? Is that is that something that you, you know, you sort of try to instill into your family environment? Um, I think that's harder. Uh, I think that's hard. I think that they they have to get to a point where um, they're old enough to. I think there's a a developmental stage in that, um, and that also probably need to get to a point where there are more times where they actually want to be alive, so that the there isn't a constancy of wishing they were not alive. Um, it's, I mean, again, I'm not an expert in this. I'm, just let me keep saying I'm just a mother. But I do think that the one certainty that Molly has is that she can be in touch with me at any time. So Molly has lived away from us for six years studying. She's actually just returned back for a full-time, her first graduate full-time position uh, living back at home, which has been a bit of a shock for all of us. Um, but for her, she's known that she could contact me at any time. So we've had lots of texting. One of the things is any parent knows, the thing about the mobile phone is that we expect that we have um, easy access to our children and know wherever they are. But of course, the other side of that is they can choose not to answer the phone or they can choose not to respond to a text. And then if you have a child that is um, that you feel concerned about for whatever reason and they don't answer a text, then your mind can go racing. So we've done, we've made an arrangement that if she just doesn't have the energy to answer a text, that's fine. I mean, when people have a choice, they don't, if they don't feel ready to participate in a conversation, don't, you need to give people permission not to. But please send me an emoji of some kind just so I know that you're alive and I think that is the most almost one of the most important tips I could give to any parent is to try and get that agreement between your child and yourself because um, we know what it's like to text and hear well silence or a as, phone call that rings and there's nothing. As mum, uh, you are the <laughs> lifeline and you've got to negotiate that so carefully as you are the lifeline and you've got to keep the lines of communication open. No use being heavy-handed because heavy-handedness will put up a barrier. Just a couple of minutes out from news, and I hope we get to talk some more about this, but it hasn't all been doom and gloom. Uh, your mum and daughter, you love your daughter as a mother does, uh, but it hasn't all been a sad, gloomy story. Uh, just uh, a few moments here just to share with us some of the the ways that, you know, you've had a wonderful time raising your daughter. Oh, look, um, I have an, uh, the mother-daughter relationship's wonderful. Uh, uh, she's a funny and really clever um well beyond me. I mean, I, I come out of a 
journalism, communications, word type background, and Molly has gone down engineering and science, physics, and things that are so beyond my comprehension. Um, her awareness of, of the world and her engagement with things, as I've learned, I learn so much from her all the time. And I love that. I love that ability to kind of have a relationship where you're just being challenged by your children and um, in, in positive ways. And yes, they can tease you and, you know, remind you of your foibles, which I also think is wonderful. Uh, the uh, thing I would add is that I am, I am the opposite to Molly. I am uh, optimistic, hopeful, and have would never in my entire life have had a moment, not a moment, where I would wish that I was not alive. So to, um, to be able to hold that in my daughter has been uh, like learning about the, the issues that people face and to be able to walk alongside and empathise and hold tight is, um, I think has also been an amazing um, thing to learn because it helps me understand or be more aware of others and there are many others who have the same struggles as Molly uh, and to recognise their beauty and humanity rather than be terrified or anxious about it. Penny, Um, we're going to break in here because we're going to news. Let me come to the story that you did write in the article in the Eternity News because uh, you were encouraged by a friend to start writing your story. Uh, take us a little bit into this reasoning why you've got the article, why you want to be so open and and to talk to people and engage them in a conversation like this. Uh, thank you, Neil. Um, I think the reason I was so open is perhaps because I've been on the journey long enough to try and find words around it. I'd have to say that as I wrote the story and memories came back and I've got a lot of texts still in my phone between Molly and I that helped um, bring back memories. Um, It was, you know, I'd find I was writing it through tears. Um, But I was really writing it not just for me, but there was a bit of for me um, and it was written with Molly's permission and she had read it and her name is, is the name Molly is a pseudonym um, but I was really also writing it to encourage other parents uh, who might be in similar situations because I believe that many 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 parents are in a similar situation it won't be the same it will be it could be a whole lot worse it could be slightly better, it could be totally different, but they're still dealing with um, the trauma or, or the kind of anxiety of caring and loving uh, a, a grown-up child, a smaller child, whatever, but their child who is um, experiencing uh, a sense of anxiety and mental health issues around themselves. So that's who I wrote it for. I wrote it for, yes, myself, but really also to say to other parents, it's okay. You're doing your best. Don't beat yourself up. Keep loving your child. Whoever they are, they, you know, they are definitely worth hanging in there and you're doing a great job. Don't sort of... All you can do is keep loving them. Talk about it with other people. Um, stay connected. You can't do it on your own. You can get pretty worn out. You need someone else you can share it with. Um, but... 
But I want to say that I've never had any answers. I'm often stumbling in the dark like any other parent. And uh, I just look for God's wisdom and I pray. (laughs) You know, Penny, you said, I'm not an expert. I'm just a mum. Well, having gone through what you have been through in raising your daughter, and she is a young woman and she lives independently of you now, I think a lot of our listeners would be agreeing when we say you are the expert on how you have tackled this and all of the things that you've learned along the way. And and we're just in awe of you having uh, wanted to put out there your story so that you can share these uh, these ways that you can cope, ways that you can deal with this, ways that you can connect God into the circumstance of your own story with you and your family. And I know and I just about feel it, the love that would be coming from listeners all around Australia for Molly and knowing that she's been through this tough time and that it's not over yet, she's not out of the woods. But no doubt listeners all around Australia will be prayerful and also that love expressed to Molly. And uh, Molly, no doubt, will get a chance to listen to this conversation. So just to share that, uh, that our love is to her uh, at this time. Let's talk about what your key message might be, because I don't want to miss the opportunity for listeners to hear what that really essential message is that you would have for them about your relationship with your daughter. How do you describe the most important thing around your daughter and your relationship and all the things you've been through together? Well, I have three children, Neil, and um, Molly is the youngest. She's got two older brothers. And look, raising uh, children is a lifetime thing because, you know, they start off tiny. And I've always said that um, to people that, the whole part of being a parent is letting go from the moment that they are released into someone other than your own arms, be it a grandparent or a carer, and onto school and each journey. It's a constant journey of letting go. But it doesn't take away that love. And I think the potentially the way we can see God's love for us, the clearest way we can see it is probably the way that we as parents have for our children. that un, It's unconditional. In Well, normally it's unconditional. I suppose there are times when we still get cross with them, but God gets cross with us. But there's this love because they're so connected. So I think, um, I suppose what I'd want to say to, to parents in terms of writing this is that whatever struggles that we have with children along our journeys, and we all do, and... There's all sorts of things that happen in family life and lots of things that impact our children that we never know about. Um, things that happen at school, things that happen at social events that we just don't even know about. So they are being formed and, and moulded by their own life experiences that can both strengthen them and damage them. Um, but our role, I think, is to just keep loving them. And yes, that means that have setting boundaries and I don't mean that it's not parenting but ultimately it's love which we're told is the key part of the Bible let's face it love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself all your heart all your soul all your mind all your strength we are called to love um, the greatest of these are faith hope hope and love the greatest of these is love so the message is love um, so for me I, I'm I would be encouraging parents to recognize that 
whatever is happening in your child, it is forming them and making them who they are. So for Molly, this is who she is. She might live with this and learn to live with it in her own way her whole life. This might be her life journey. I don't know. It's not for me to want that to be any different. It's for me to be able to love her and journey with her in it. And I think that's the privilege of parenting is we are parenting our children and they're not perfect. And we're not perfect. But we are found we are loved and formed and by the creator of the universe. And that creator has has given us the privilege of raising children, bearing children, raising children. I don't know, adopting children, however we might have children. Um, and out of that, we are called to love them. Mm. And we want to love them. And, and it may be... In the end, that's what I'm saying. It may be that our love is greater because there are extra dimensions uh, to the way that we need to respond in love. Penny, let me just reflect. Uh, listeners have been leaving notes on our Facebook post today. The question there says, if you've experienced mental illness... How do you describe the darkness? How do we best care for people with depression? Some of the notes that people have left have been quite long, so I'll just see if I can uh, go through a few of these just quickly. Luke says, I struggled with depression and suicidal thoughts. I wrote about my journey through it all. Medication, ECT, therapy, the works. I'm on the other side of it now, praise God. But it was hard for a long time, not just for me, but those around me too. Stephanie says... I've struggled with depression, anxiety and panic attacks since my 30s. It's very sad and scary for both the one who suffers and the one watching on and feeling helpless. I used to watch television every minute that I wasn't actively doing something, just so that my mind would have a rest. Sleeping was another time of turning it off. It was a very deep, dark place. Uh, then Can there's... I just leap in there, Neil? Yes, yes. Um, I think that comment is um, profoundly touches one of the issues for those who are suffering um, depression and anxiety and it's the voice in the head and the voice in the head just goes and goes and goes and goes and goes and the voice in the head is constantly telling them how hopeless they are and that voice doesn't stop and that's one of the things I mean we all have a voice in the head because we all know about imposter syndrome and all those kind of things but for those who are in in this kind of space I think that voice is louder and more insistent and it makes it really hard to hear the other voice that might say, you are loved, you are okay. I know that... I was going to say, I know that you reflect in your story uh, the idea that there's huge pressure that comes from the expectation of perfection and that would be coming through all of the media, the advertising, uh, all of the uh, popular industries that capture our attention. That doesn't make things easier either for that voice in the head. Oh, no, no. And, I mean, I think I'm of the view, I mean, it's not probably tested, but I'm of the view that it's a whole lot harder for this generation of of young people because social media, there's no... Um, there's more opportunity for bullying in social media. No one can switch themselves off. You can't take yourself as a kid out of the whatever the latest social media connections are. And, you know, and, and we constantly, they're constantly um, connected. There's no downtime. The, you know, they're connected at night. They're connected in the morning. They're connected all the time. So there's absolutely no ability to um, just have time away 
And if you are, you're seen as a failure. Um, there's lots of judgment. I mean, we see it amongst adults as well, the, the, that harsh voice in Twitter sphere, for instance. I mean, there's a real judgment in our society. So it'd be interesting to know what's happening in this pandemic. I mean, on the one hand, we're seeing more people talk about kindness. And I think kindness is one of the most underrated gifts of the spirit. <laughs> kindness is so important for all of us. And to provide and do kind acts just gives someone so much reassurance and a sense of their own purpose and meaning. But also, I think in this pandemic, there's also a sense of you're being isolated. And what is happening for those who are being cut off and who are uh, even more left in their own heads? What does that do? And I don't, I, I would only say I'd be a bit concerned for them. Yeah. Let me reflect Karen on Facebook today who says, For me, my head was always foggy and spacey. I felt like no one cared and everyone would be better off without me in their life. Uh, like I was a burden, even if people said they cared, I would think they were just saying that to try and make me feel better. When I was in yep. depression, the one thing that helped me was having one person whom I met online that listened and I could text, who told me I was important and didn't judge. For some reason, I actually believed this person, even though I did not believe those who had known me all my life. There's some interesting dimensions in there. Wonder if, any thoughts for Karen as she's told us how she felt? Oh, I just say, praise God, Karen, how wonderful for that person and somehow they connected. I actually think it's about the fact that people that you've known for a long time, because Molly would say to me, you're saying that because you're my mother, you have to. Mm. And it's the logic that those who are, have known you for a long time, well, of course they've got to love you. That's part of it. But maybe someone who's just met you and is telling you that, that well, they don't, they don't carry that baggage. Maybe for some reason, this is me, I'm, I'm just guessing here, but maybe there's something different about that because they don't have all of that history with you. They're just seeing you then and they're giving you that. But all I can say is thank you. Thank God for that person, for Karen, and may there be people like that who speak into everybody's life because we all need people beyond those who, you know, I mean, as a parent, we tell our children and we mean it, but to have someone else say you're important, that's what we all long for. Is there a but, hint there for uh, the broader listeners today listening to our conversation all around Australia, and no doubt many have connections with people who are going through mental illness, but is there a, a hint there that says we need to connect with people that we do know are going through some darkness times because sometimes the burden on the family is such that that trust isn't even there, as you say, when there's a long history. Sometimes that trust is not there as strongly. And so for people who are in church life and perhaps even in a pastoral care type of setting, just to make contact and to reinforce some of those good things. Mm, I'd say carefully. Carefully. Um, carefully, because I think, Neil, what can happen is that people can come and give advice or become the expert, which really shuts a person down. So I, I think, yes, be really careful and feel that there's an invitation there because to suddenly start giving advice or to say, oh, I just, just wanted to tell you, I think you're fabulous. They'd go, well, where's that coming from? Um, and then they might start asking, well, whatever have I been putting out weird vibes? So there's, it's very layered and it might work for one and it might not for another, but 
whatever you do, don't start um, suggesting that you have the answers because that will be, that will be just terrible. Arouses suspicion and could make things worse. Absolutely. Let me ask you, Penny, you tell the story in your article about carrying Molly around in your backpack, uh, connecting when she's even not living with you, not under your care anymore. How important is this connection for you? And uh, how does that backpack story uh, just share with us, you know, your thoughts around the way you carry Molly around with you these days? Well, it's it's that invisible backpack, of course. Yes. yes. But um, I think it's around because we are so connected and in the sort of depths of conversations and struggles and things. And, uh, you know, I haven't talked about, you know, Holly has um, had a couple of attempts on her life and been very close even last year to wanting to do something and called me in total, in a total state. So I'd have to say I really notice it particularly um, if I haven't heard from her or I hear from her, I, I would ring it back immediately or I would answer the phone no matter what. So there's that sense of the connection is that there's always that degree of are you okay is everything, you know, and, and not wanting to make her feel that that's how I feel, but that's in my head. Um, how can I? But, but the other point I, I would make on that is, and, and this is the hard part of conversations around suicide, is that um, I think we need to be kept and kind about people who end up making that choice in that and those who love those people and why and sometimes they say why didn't they do something why didn't they know can I just say you could be with someone for 23 and a half hours or 23 hours and 50 minutes and in those last 10 minutes of that day they could still do something if they really wanted to and that person who's making that call, they're not doing it because they're selfish, particularly when they're young or anyone, I suppose. It's because they're doing it out of a total sense of their sheer hopelessness and their, um, that, that nobody, that, that total belief that everyone would be better off without them, that they are such a burden, as that person said in that text. And that is, I mean... It's an extraordinary feeling that I, I, I can't fathom. I cannot fathom that feeling, but I'm, I know it enough having had conversations to totally have a totally different view on any view I might have had about suicide in the past. When your little girl grows up and she's no longer under your care, all you have is the connection by telephone and you have this wonderful, wonderful tool that God has given to us called prayer. I wonder if you could let us in just for a few moments, and I know people will will hang on every word here as to how you pray when your little girl is not under your care, not under your roof. What are your thoughts for prayer here? Oh, I don't know whether I've got any um, deep, meaningful, except that I just hand her over to, to God um, I hand all my children over to God uh, and I hand over others that I feel anxious about. Um, I, I mean, I 
certainly pray that God will love and care for them. Um, I pray that he might keep them safe, but I also have to acknowledge, which I find really hard to acknowledge, but I have to acknowledge that there's no guarantee on that um, because there are plenty of Christian families who have suffered unbelievable pain through um, loss of children or loss of loved ones in different ways. So just because we have a, a direct line to God doesn't mean that that means, as I said earlier in this conversation, that life is rosy. Um, and it doesn't mean that I'm any more special than anyone else and so therefore my children or anyone in my life will be protected more than anyone else. And But that doesn't stop me praying. So in one sense I'm praying for my own um, sense of God's peace in my own life because the thing that I've... One of my favourite passages is in Philippians 4, 4 to 8, but that sense of God's peace which passes all understanding. So that's what I need to draw on, God's peace. And to, to get that peace it's about prayer just keep praying to seek god's peace which passes all understanding um, well, i can't understand it that's that I, I i want it and i seek it well we're running out of time for our conversation and i wonder whether i might lead us in a short prayer not only for you and for molly but perhaps for other listeners who might be triggered in some sense uh, into some sadness hearing this story today and i wonder whether it might just spend just a moment uh, can i lead us in prayer here penny is that okay oh neil that would be just wonderful thank you loving god we're so so aware of your love for all of us in the different circumstances that we face whether we feel like our thoughts are full of light or whether we feel like our life and our thoughts are full of darkness. We're just so thankful, Lord, that you have given to us what you've said is the light of the world. And we pray, Lord, even in this moment, that for every listener to our conversation, and for Penny and for Molly, Lord, that your light might break in upon the darkness, that there might be a light at the end of the dark tunnel, that there might, Lord, be your presence, your power and your peace to come upon families who are listening to us today going through all sorts of struggle and turmoil. We would submit ourselves to you, Lord, for your wisdom in how we conduct ourselves in the relationships we have with people with mental illness. And, Lord, we'd submit their lives and we'd commit their lives to you that your care and attention might be around every single element of their daily walk. Lord, I pray that your light break in on that darkness and that blessing come into families right around this nation, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Well, we are at the end of our conversation and I do want to make sure that listeners know they can read your whole story when they simply Google uh, your story on Eternity News. And uh, the title of your story, let me just... Uh, could, do you recall the, the title of the story? I don't think I've got that written down in front of me. Uh, Penny, is, is yeah, there a title? It's a bit of a terrifying title, actually. <laughs> I didn't come up with a title, but Caring for My Daughter Who Does Not Want to Live is the title. Okay. It's not <laughs> a happy it's title. in your face. <laughs> it's, it's in your face. And uh, it's Penny Mulvey. Is, so if you Google Penny Mulvey, Eternity News, you'll find that story. 
Once again, for listeners, if our conversation today has triggered something, there are some numbers. I'll give you the numbers. Uh, for an emergency, it's triple O. For some of that resource that Penny mentioned was really valuable, beyond blue, and they have telephone counsellors as well, 1300 4636. That's 1300 Also, Lifeline, 131114. And I mentioned Vision Christian Prayer on 1-800-772-936. That's 1-800-772-936. Penny Mulvey, just wonderful to talk to you today. Thank you so much for sharing your heart with listeners. Uh, I know listeners will be appreciative of uh, hearing your heartbeat around your own story. And I want to thank you so much for making that time available to talk to us on 2020. Oh, well, Neil, I appreciate the Thank you for the privilege of it. And just to thank the listeners and encourage you to just keep loving and hugging your children. Well, you can hug your children. Others can't hug them. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.